Okay, hello everybody and welcome to Investing with IBD sponsored by Interactive Brokers. I'm Alyssa Cora, Multimedia Content Editor at IBD and joining me today is my co-host Justin Nielsen, IBD Market Research Director. And our special guest this week is Jordan Kahn. He's President and CIO of ACM Funds. Welcome, Jordan. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so today on today's show, uh, thanks so much for being here, Jordan. We're going to talk a little bit about the current market. We'll dive into that. Um, And I thought it was really interesting how Jordan was sharing some of his stories on risk management, how some of those early lessons he learned kind of made him a better investor. So he'll share some of those lessons. And of course, we'll take a look at a few stock market ideas. But first, let's go ahead and get into the current market. So Jordan, uh, the, the after such a strong 2020, this year started in a very different way. And you were noticing a lot of these rotational plays, um, you know, and, you know, the NASDAQ here just kind of got out of a little bit of a corrective phase. Where do you think we are now? Is the rotation play over or does this have legs? Yeah, you know, I think that the big part of the rotation, you know, you're showing the NASDAQ here and the NASDAQ obviously had a bigger correction than the S&P did. And I think part of that was because the S&P kind of benefited from some of this underlying sector rotation. So as a lot of the tech stocks were all going down at the same time and some of the large cap growth, you had this rotation into things like energy and financials and industrials. And so I think that kind of benefited the S&P a little bit more. Um, So in terms of the the correction in the NASDAQ, it does look like for the most part, it has run its course. You know, I think that this uptrend has been a little bit choppy. We like to call it a a stair step pattern. And so I think that that's likely to continue where the market kind of takes two steps forward and one step back, you know, periodically. And, uh, you know, a lot of times we try to look for precedents in the market, maybe not necessarily to provide an exact blueprint of what's happening today, but to look at similarities in what has happened in the past that might inform our decision making for today. What are you looking at in terms of past market cycles and the similarities that you're seeing in today's market? Yeah, I mean, one of the similarities, and I think, you know, Justin and I talked about this earlier, was the similarity in late 2016, where after the election, you had this really violent rotation out of growth and into value plays. You know, at at the time, the expectation was just for an acceleration in the economy. And so a lot of these beaten down material stocks and industrials and commodity plays and what have you, you know, all started surging at the expense of many of the tried and true growth leaders, those stocks really fell by the wayside. But as we got into early 2017, those growth stocks kind of regained their footing and began to show show leadership again. I think that that has some similarities for now. The difference I think is that because we're still kind of early in this strong economic reopening, I think a lot of these value plays that are seeing that are benefiting from this current rotation likely have some legs to them. I think that they can can work their way higher, which they didn't do in early 2017, but I think that they have the tailwinds to do so now. So I think it'll be more of a balanced market. You know, last year in 2020, we saw this historic outperformance by growth. Um, And so I think there still is some reversion to the mean of that trade left. So what about for small caps? Because I remember after the presidential election, the Russell 2000, had uh, quite quite a move. And part of that was the financials that was really driving a lot of that uh, for the Russell 2000. Um, the Russell 2000 was kind of showing some early strength in, in this year. And now that's kind of uh, looking like it's getting into a little bit of a 
trouble here. It, 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 it crossed below its 50-day moving average line today. Um, do you think that that plays into uh, your your rotation play at all, or is it just more of a small cap versus big cap? I mean, the big caps really seem to be getting a lot of attention lately uh, with yeah. Google and Microsoft and, and those big names, the heavyweights. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, 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 when we talk about the strength of the economic reopening, I think that those fundamentals should play into um, further strength for the small caps. But again, you know, we talked about how nothing, no moves tend to go in a straight line. And so small caps did have a historic run, right? They had, they had this enormous run, this, this recent rally that lasted for months. And so I think that they're just, they need to take a breather, right? They probably have to go through some sort of consolidation of their own and form some bases. Um, but I don't think that, that the rally in terms of the remainder of the year is over for small caps. Well, you talked about the strength and growth in 2020, which was pretty undeniable. And Canslin Investing is centered around these high-performing growth stocks. And you implement some Canslin strategies uh, of your own in your trading. Can you talk to us a little bit more about your trading strategies through your career in the investing world and ACM funds? Yeah, I mean, early on in my career, when I was in my master's program, we had to study all of the, the well-known investors, right? The guys that have been featured in Market Wizards and, and so on and so forth. And William O'Neill was one of the investors that kind of stuck, stuck out to me because I was looking at all these different kinds of investment philosophies and trying to figure out which one really resonated with me. And so his investment philosophy and the whole Canslam approach was one that resonated with me. And so I had always kind of been working with that strategy and creating my own little tweaks to it to kind of to fit into to what I was doing. And so we still incorporate a lot of it today. What's interesting is that when I started ACM funds back in 2015, our investment philosophy or our stock picking strategy was really predicated on finding these stocks that were experiencing these explosive high volume breakouts and then digging, digging down in the fundamentals after that to find the true quality leaders. Um, and I don't think at the time that MarketSmith had kind of this breakaway gap screen that it does now, but that's something that we still run every day and find a lot of our, our names from there. And, and what do you use to kind of, uh, after you see the, the technical action that you're attracted to, um, what kind of analysis are you doing on the fundamental side? Uh, how deep do you get into the, the 10 Qs, 10 Ks presentations and so on? Yeah, so I mean, it, it all depends. But what's, what's interesting is that, you know, a lot of managers start on the fundamental or the valuation right. side when they're running their screens, looking for stocks that are trading at discounts to what they deem intrinsic value is or have certain ROE characteristics. And so what we did differently was we kind of turned that equation around. And so our first screen is running this technical base screen where we're, we're specifically screening for stocks that have experienced these high volume breakouts. And then, like you said, from there, we get into what we call our deeper dive, where we dig into the fundamentals. And, you know, we're looking at all sorts of things. You know, first, we're looking for companies that have good financial strength. So we're looking for balance sheet strength, you know, low levels of debt, high levels of profitability. We're incorporating some of those can slim features like strong current quarterly um, and yearly EPS and revenue growth, high ROEs. We also like to look for good earning stability. Um, Upward earnings revisions is something that, that we like to see. And we do, we do have a valuation component in there. So you could call it sort of like a modified GARP or, or growth at a reasonable price, reasonable price kind of thing where we don't have a, a set PE 
above which we wouldn't pay. It really is relative to the growth rates that we're seeing. So we just want we just don't want to pay too high of a multiple for growth. And I think last year was an example where it really just didn't matter. You know, the, the growth names investors were willing to pay any multiple for that. Right. And I think this year you're seeing some differentiation of of some of uh, you know what what last year was just anything goes. Well, and that's an important point that a lot of the uh, folks that, you know, maybe started investing in 2020 might have gotten used to a very forgiving uh, market where you could make a lot of mistakes. Um, were there any early mistakes that you made in, in, in your career that kind of uh, helped you get on, on the right path? Absolutely. And it's really interesting that you bring that up because last year when we were talking to advisors and, and, and you know, trying to help them with their discussions they were having with end clients. One of the things that we were focusing on was this discussion about risk management and how important it is, you know, to focus on risk management, whether it's position sizing or sector concentrations, all of those things. Because of what I was mentioning was the last time that I had seen kind of risk being thrown out the window the way it was last year was back in 1999. Right. And, and in 99, I had scraped together a little bit of money from friends and family and I had just started my own little hedge fund. It was this text focused hedge fund that I was trying to get off the ground. Um, and in the first six months of 99, our fund was up 54%, which sounds like a good thing, but it probably led to, to some complacency. And even though I had gotten this master's degree where I had studied futures and options and you know, my risk management um, procedures just weren't as, as dialed in as they are today. And so, you guys probably weren't trading back then. I'm a little bit older than both of you, but in the, in the no, that's when I started. I remember it well. Uh, okay, so yeah. In, in the spring of 2000, what talk what about tripped, making bad habits. Yeah. <laughs> what, what really tripped me up at my fund in March of 2000 was back then they called them these new economy stocks. A lot of these internet stocks that had recently come public, and a lot of them didn't have mm -hmm. options trading on them. So I couldn't hedge all of the individual names. And so what I did at the time was I bought index puts on the NASDAQ 100. And so when you talk about how correlations can sometimes you know, run askew. So what happened in March of 2000 was that all of these internet, these new economy stocks that started to sell off, the money rotated into a lot of the large cap leaders like the Microsofts and Cisco's of the day. So on the individual stock side, I was experiencing losses on those underlying names. And then my puts weren't protecting because the NDX actually went up for most of March of 2000. So it was a double whammy and it was a really tough pill to swallow. But, you know, again, it was, it was a lesson in risk management and, and, you know, looking forward, it obviously made me a much better investor for having went through that experience and learned how to, how to deal with situations like that. Well, definitely looking forward to digging more into risk management with you when we come back from our commercial break and digging into the mutual fund strategies that you are deploying at ACM. So we'll get into that when we come right back. Are you looking for ways to earn extra income? Well, Interactive Brokers Stock Yield Enhancement Program lets you earn extra income on fully paid shares of stock in your brokerage account. Here's how it works. IBKR lends your shares to traders who pay interest to borrow them, and you receive 50% of the income earned. It's that simple. Open an Interactive Brokers account today and start earning extra income. Find out more at ibkr.com slash S-Y-E-P. 
Okay, welcome back to Investing with IBD, sponsored by Interactive Brokers. And our special guest today is Jordan Kahn of ACM Funds. Now, Jordan, uh, let's continue this conversation a little bit about that parallel to the late 90s, 2000, the dot-com bubble, um, which was a very forgiving market. And again, it kind of, uh, I guess, made a lot of people complacent, thinking that they were maybe a lot better than they were actually were. Uh, a lot of rules didn't apply. Now, that was something that we saw a little bit of in 2020. Um, what kind of parallels do you see here from you know then to the current market? Yeah, there's a few parallels that I think are similar. You know, one, like you've said, is kind of this um, not really focusing too much on valuations and thinking that a lot of these stocks that have such high growth can really just continue to grow into whatever valuation you're paying today. So last year we saw these exorbitant multiples for things like the Zooms and, and Teslas of the world. And people said, you know, well, they're experiencing such high growth that even if today's price is high, they'll likely grow into it. You know, also a lot of these cloud stocks, you know, last year, a lot of these cloud stocks were trading at 30, 40, 50 times revenue, not, not just earnings. And that's something that we haven't seen since the dot-com bubble. And so if you use that dot-com bubble as a parallel, what we, what we learned back then was that all of these companies can't grow into these valuations, right? There just isn't enough business to go around. Remember in 1999, there were all of these fiber optic companies and stuff and everybody right. said, well, the growth of the internet is this new paradigm. And so there's just infinite demand. But in the end, there was overcapacity and mm -hmm. these things went down a ton and a lot of them had to consolidate. And I suspect it'll be the same this time around. There just doesn't seem, there doesn't seem like there will be enough business for all of these cloud names that have come public in recent years. And so there likely will be um, a, a shakeout where stock prices will go down in the next downturn and there will be consolidations. And so th th that's one area where I think that there are some similarities. The other is the liquidity aspect, right? This, this year, this environment, there's tons of liquidity being provided by the Fed. We just came out of a right. pandemic. Um, and there's all this monetary stimulus. You know, back then we had had the, the long-term management, long-term capital management crisis in 98. The Fed slashed rate three times in 98 and provided all of this liquidity. Also going into, into the end of 2000, there was this concern about what was called the Y2K, the changeover. And right. was there gonna mm -hmm. be some sort of liquidity crunch? So the Fed was providing a lot of liquidity at that time also. And I think all of those things kind of just played into this fomenting of the bubble. And so we could, I could see the same thing happening this time around, that with all of this liquidity and with people not all that concerned about valuations and talk of this, this new paradigm, whether it's the, the Zooms of the world or even cryptocurrency, which kind of seems to get a lot of people's speculative juices flowing, um, that I could see this thing kind of running and kind of culminating in a similar type of blow off top that we saw in 2000. Well, now, the Fed, of course, at that time was, uh, you know, under the direction of Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan, who famously, you know, had that irrational exuberance speech, which was actually what was that in '96 or something? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. well before the 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 top came. So um, how much more do you think we have to go? Because one of the things that's different is that we have this whole reopening play, and you know, not only do we have the stimulus, the cash coming from stimulus, we have. Uh, if you know these vaccines really kind of take hold and immunity comes, uh, we've got the reopening. Um, you know, is that enough of a difference? You think to give this more legs? I think so. I mean, you know, we we have a myriad of tailwinds right now for the market. Right? You have you have double-barreled stimulus, both 
On the monetary side, the Fed is, you know, intent on holding rates at zero. I think that, you know, the recent unemployment rate got down to 6%. I think in the Fed's mind, they wanted to get back to that three and a half that it was pre-pandemic last February. So the Fed's holding rates at zero. They're also still doing their monthly quantitative easing, right? Despite mm -hmm. how, how quickly everything is, is starting to get going in the economy, they're still doing QE. We also have, we just had our second round of fiscal stimulus, right? There was a round of stimulus payments that went out last year that are probably still working their way into the economy. We just had a new round recently, and now there's talk of an infrastructure plan on top of it. So there's a lot of fiscal stimulus. And then to your point, this reopening that's expected to be super strong for the economy is still in its early stages. We're just getting going with the vaccine rollout. So people are just getting vaccinated and, and feeling comfortable again, going out and traveling. And in terms of, of the economy more fully reopening, things like cruises and, and sporting events and concerts, you know, those things have barely even started again. So I think that there's plenty of strength out there. And for a lot of us Canslim investors, the market is a huge component of what we do. And you talked about using that technical scan, then digging deeper with the fundamentals. Talk to us a little bit about how market conditions impact what you do at ACM funds and how your hedging approach comes into play with that. Yeah, so the, the technical aspect is a big part of it. You know, we're always kind of focusing on, on the uptrends and, and downtrends in the market. And so what, what we've done at ACM funds is we've created what we call this hedge model. And what we do with our hedge model is we look at several of the different indices, right? Like the S&P, the NASDAQ, the Russell. So we have, you know, different market caps in there. And then we overlay various timeframes on each of those indices. Right, so we have, we have short-term, intermediate-term, as well as longer-term moving averages. And so how we adjust our exposure in the fund is that when, when those indices are in uptrends and they're trading above all of these respective moving averages in our model, our portfolio is basically unhedged and we have all of our stock picks growing unhedged. Um, and then as each one of these indices begins to roll over and break down below these moving averages that we've used as overlays, then we start layering in our hedges and we, and we hedge them using the index ETF. So if the NASDAQ starts to roll over, we'll start shorting the QQQ against our long book. And so that's kind of how we adjust our exposure, right? So we may be 100% long in stocks and have a 25% hedge in one or more of these indices so that our overall exposure gets down to about 75. And so it's just how you know, running a mutual fund, we handle our exposure a little bit differently than maybe the individual investor at home who might just raise cash and, and have cash sitting there. But it's kind of a, a similar concept. Now, do you always do your kind of hedging start on the rollover, on the weakness? Or is there ever a time where you're like, gosh, this is, this is getting a little uh, overblown or you know, a little bit beyond what is normal, do you ever do it uh, on the strength side and say, you know what, we're going to start hedging maybe a little bit early before the rollover happens on, on the strength? Yeah. So if you have the scars on your back that I have from 25 <laughs> right. plus years of trading, you're always looking to manage risk on, on numerous fronts, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's, it's position sizing. And as our stocks move up and down, we will trade around them. We'll trim stocks that have had big run-ups and look to add to stocks that are pulling back. But then to your point, in terms of the rollover, our, our, our primary method of hedging the portfolio is using these, these index ETFs. So when we're using those, we don't kind of front run our model. So we won't start adding those hedges in before we've seen the rollover. 
But we also sometimes, you know, we're frequent users of put options. So put options require very little capital outlay. So sometimes when markets look frothy to us and they kind of look extended, we will start to buy some puts just to give us a head start that if things start to roll over, you know, we do have some hedges on the sheets that will start to kick in. And are those going to be on the indexes or on uh, some of the individual stocks that you? It have? can be on both. Sometimes it would be on the indexes, but sometimes it's on stocks. You know, if if, if a given stock has had a big run up and maybe it's going into an earnings report, a lot of times we will buy puts on that name just to kind of take out that event risk um, mm -hmm. from the earnings report, since it seems to be such a coin toss lately, which ones go up or down after they report. So risk management is clearly a very key component. You can have all the technical metrics down. You can have the fundamental ratings that you want. You can even have the market on your side. But if you don't have those risk management rules in place, you're not going to see very much progress. Risk management is huge. And for us, it's all about trying to minimize the downside, right? There's always going to be downturns. And for us, if you can focus on minimizing that downside risk and protecting your capital during the downturns, then when the market turns higher, you're going to make up those small losses very quickly. And that's, that's for us, is kind of key to having good long-term compound rates of return. And how has this changed? Because, of course, you know, you alluded to the fact that you didn't have um, as many options in the option market when you were uh, kind of taking your taking your licks uh, in, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, now that the option market has expanded so much, um, your, your options for risk management have greatly expanded as well. So what kind of, what kind of differences do you see there and, and how has that uh, allowed you to adjust? Um, besides just, I mean, the volume, individual stock availability in, of, of options, uh, anything yeah. else that you've kind of learned along the way? Well, the options markets are much deeper now, more liquid. Um, they, so back then there was a, a big delay when a company would come public before it had options trading on it. Now it seems to happen much quicker. So that's beneficial on the individual um, option strategies. There's also a lot more ETFs now. So mm -hmm. you know, for various exposures that we may have in our, in our fund, there's more ETFs that we can use as hedging or sometimes to buy puts on. You know, now there's ETFs that focus on genomics or certain parts of the semiconductor market or autonomous driving. And so there's just a lot more options to manage risk these days. Now, our biggest rule, of course, is you know, our 7%, 8% stop loss for, you know, this is from our purchase price. Um, as a mutual fund, it's a little bit harder for you to kind of get in and out of positions right. like that. So um, is that is, is all of your risk management kind of through options or are there times where you're like, hey, this, this breakout didn't work or breakouts aren't working in general and you adjust your risk management accordingly? Yeah, absolutely. So especially for, for new positions that we take, we do use uh, a 10% stop loss, give or take. Okay. You know, seven is a little bit tight for us, but we do right. use a 10% stop loss. And again, to the point that I made earlier, it's really about protecting your capital. So if we buy a new position, and we're wrong, maybe we're wrong in our research or we're wrong in the timing, or maybe we're wrong in the overall market rolls over. Again, we wanna focus on preserving capital, knowing that you know, the ones we get right going forward will more than make up for those losses if we keep them small. So it seems like there, there's an impact on turnover with that in the mutual fund wrapper. You know, if we have a period where we're wrong on a bunch of names and do get stopped out, you know, it can, it can affect turnover, but Part of the, the hedging strategies that I've described to you do help us minimize turnover because they help us hang on to a lot of our names through corrections and benefit from holding them for the longer term. So in, in that sense, the turnover 
in our in our long portfolio of stocks is relatively low. Well, Justin, it sounds like there's a lot of similarities uh, with what Jordan's doing and uh, yeah, some of the yeah. strategies. Yeah, we, we might have to have him on, a, on another webinar just to kind of talk about some of this. Uh, so one one uh, more component of risk management, of course, is you know a lot of people talk about diversification. So um, as a mutual fund, uh, you know how how are you dealing with the question of diversification, um, whether across you know individual stocks or uh, sectors? Yeah, diversification is another big one. You know, I didn't touch on it, so I'm glad that you brought it up. One of the decisions that we made when we started our fund, our equity fund, was that we wouldn't let any one sector be more than 25% of the fund. So especially in recent years, you know, there's been a lot of tech names and our, and our tech exposure has gotten to that 25% limit, but we didn't want to get bigger than that because we didn't want the fund sort of acting like a sector fund, right? right. And, we, and we know that when there are those vicious rotations, it can be incredibly painful. And you know, when you're running a, a publicly traded mutual fund, you know, minimizing drawdowns and things like that is really uh, you know, of paramount importance. So, so that's a big aspect for us. But on the flip side, you know, we don't have any minimums. So if there's no stocks coming through our screens from a given sector, we won't have any exposure. So we're not really benchmarking into an index, so to speak, like a lot of funds. But like last year, I don't think we had any energy or material stocks in there. Now we've started to see some breakouts from those areas and some stocks coming through our screens and we do have exposure there. But that, So that's kind of how we do it in terms of uh, diversification. Well, as Jordan said, risk management is incredibly important. And when we come back, we're going to take a look at that in action, perhaps with a short-term example, a trade. We're going to take a look at with Canopy Growth and an intermediate term and long-term potential idea as well. So we'll get into that right after the break. Interactive Brokers charges USD margin loan rates from 0.75% to 1.59%. Their clients can also earn extra income by lending their fully paid shares of stock. Join Interactive Brokers clients from 200 plus countries and territories to invest in stocks, options, futures, funds, and bonds globally. Minimize your costs to maximize your returns. Rates subject to change. Learn more at ibkr.com compare. Welcome back to Investing with IBD, sponsored by Interactive Brokers. We're here with Ali Coram as my co-host and Jordan Kahn as our special guest. So, all right, Jordan, let's get into a couple stock ideas. Um, let's start, you know, from short term and go to long term. And we'll start with uh, Canopy Growth. Uh, the ticker symbol on this is CGC. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Walk us through this one because as of now, it's not looking as great as it was a couple of months ago. Yeah, so th this is an example of, a, of an investment that turned out to be a short-term trade for us. You know, whenever we enter our positions, we endeavor to hold them for the longer term, ideally at least past one year when they get the long-term capital gains treatment. But, you know, in real time, you never know what's gonna happen. And so this is a good example of how we manage risk and manage a really strong run-up into what, um, you know, we would call, you guys would probably call also this, this blow-off top um, that happened. So what happened with Canopy Growth was it had this really high volume breakout back in November. So on November 6th, you can see it there. Yeah. So it had a big high volume breakout. That's what got it, brought it to our attention, right? We didn't, we didn't enter it right then because a lot of times when they have these high volume breakouts, they'll start to have some sideways consolidation after. So we'll continue doing our research during those sideways con consolidations and look for a good entry point. So during that time, um, 
Canopy had three quarters of accelerating revenue growth, which we always like to see. So do, so do canceling investors. Didn't have any EPS, but it was in a space where there was a lot of talk about more states opening up to cannabis to try to increase revenues and things like that. So it was kind of a hot area. We entered the stock as it pulled back towards its 50-day right in early January. So about around January 5th, yeah, we entered the stock right there. It was trading around $27. And then just a day or two later, it had another follow-on high volume breakout. That was after the Georgia elections happened, which was supposed to be cannabis friendly. And also Governor Cuomo in New York had put forth a proposal about legalizing cannabis. So there was a lot of excitement in, in that sector. Canopy took off, had a nice run up, consolidated, had a, a, a you know, another really, really strong run after that. And what you can see is that into February, the stock started going parabolic. So it peaked around February 10th, yeah, right around where your cursor is. And at that time, the stock had doubled for us. So it had gone up 100% in just five weeks. But the thing that was notable at the time is if you look at the volume surrounding that peak, you can see it had a few days of just volume off the charts, right? So to us, again, alluding back to the, the, the year 2000 days, it kind of reminded us of what happened to Yahoo back in 2000, where it went on one of those parabolic climax moves. Um, so we figured at that point, because of the volume spike, that it probably wasn't a sustainable move. We took most of our profits then, hedged our remaining position. The stock obviously came back down, broke below its 50-day. And when it was unable to recapture its 50-day, we wound up closing out the position and just you know, chalking it up a, as a nice win for us, but not something that was likely to, to be a good long-term hold at that point. Justin, I'm not sure if you would have handled that really any differently. I imagine that the hedge kind of made it so that you locked in a much bigger gain. So while it looks like, oh, you gave up all of that on the downside, you know, I'm sure that hedge really kind of uh, changed things for you. And I'm sure as the hedge, your, your options were probably working in your favor, you were making money on that side. And, you know, probably as the, uh, as the, you know, Delta was expanding as they got more out of the money, you were uh, kind of getting that dynamic leverage there. And so, uh, yeah, it, it definitely worked out well, because what we often do is, is, you know, for every thousand shares we have of the stock, we'll buy kind of an at the money put that has a, that has a Delta 0.5, not to get too right. much in the weeds, but so we'll buy on a two to one ratio, you know, the number of put options to, to common stock that we have. So yeah, as that Delta starts to increase, and it goes more and more in the money, then the, uh, the gains that we're making on the put options do tend to more than offset the declines in the stock. Ali, is this sounding familiar from IBD Live and Chris Gessel? Uh... <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah. So this is no, it, this it's, is it's right exact. You know, uh, Chris Gessel has kind of laid out that same exact strategy uh, with with the two to one deltas. Uh, deltas at you know fifty, and then you know you just you let it do what it's going to do. And yeah. if, it, if it works in your favor, it's really kind of the cost. You know, the, the, the cost of the um, the spread is really your cost. Uh, other than that, you're kind of nullifying on yeah. either side. Yeah, so that's delta hedging, and for, for that stub piece that we maintained, you know, we were able to, to offset those declines there, so it wasn't too bad. And, and were you doing that because earnings were right around there, and you kind of mentioned how a lot of times you would be, you know, hedging around earnings. Was was that coming into play there in your decision making, or was it really just that parabolic? Um, I mean, in this case, it was mostly the parabolic move that anytime we see that kind of move, we want to take profits and put hedges under it. You know, the ideal scenario would be that it would go through a kind of a brief consolidation and form maybe another cup and then come out again. Mm -hmm. um, but in this case, that just wasn't in the cards. Mm -hmm. You got to play them how, how they happen, right? Yeah. Not how you want them to happen. <laughs> right, exactly. 
And just letting our audience know if you're listening to the audio version, we do have a video version as well. So you can see the charts and uh, how we're breaking down the technical analysis. But I want to move on. Let's take a look now at Mosaic, ticker MOS in the chemical agricultural group, one that we've been increasingly focusing on this year. So Jordan, what are you seeing with Mosaic? Yeah, so Mosaic, as you mentioned, is, is a fertilizer name. Um, you know, we were looking at this one back in August of 2020. So right around August 4th, this stock experienced a big high volume breakout. Yep, right there that you're pointing to. So it had a big high volume breakout in August of 2020. That got the stock at our, on, on our radar. You know, I've known Mosaic from, from in the past, from the early and mid 2000s, back when a lot of commodity related stocks were doing really well. And so I know it's a name that when there is some inflation and there is an economic acceleration or a global reflation, it's a name that can do very well. EPS had just turned positive in 2020 and earnings, the early estimates for 2021, were looking for a big explosion in earnings. So this name looked attractive to us. We gave it some time to consolidate sideways. And so our entry was in early November, right in the early week uh, or around mid-November before Thanksgiving. That's when the stock just looked like it was gonna break out of this consolidation. So we got involved then. And fortunately, just a few days later on, on the 24th of August, it had another breakout. So it broke out of this consolidation pattern on really high volume, which was a good sign to us. And it has kind of continued to stair step higher since then. So estimates have been revised higher as people have been concerned about inflation, you know, commodity prices have firmed, their underlying prices I, I think are firm and they should, their earnings should benefit from that. The stock made a recent high uh, just in March. It's not far off that high, but I'd say from our entry point to that March high, the stock had already run up about 70%. So again, just managing our position and trading around it. We took some partial profits, but the stock is still acting right. It hasn't really done anything wrong. So we're sticking with this name and hoping that we can you know, hang in there and, and have this one be a long-term holding as well as it continues to benefit from this global reopening. So how much, uh, how much time do you give something to kind of start working for you? So Mosaic, it had that really powerful move, uh, lots of great volume, and then it really didn't do much for you know, five, six weeks. Uh, does that give you concern? Like, oh, maybe, maybe I got it at the wrong time, or are you a lot more patient and just, hey, we're gonna yeah, let we, this play out as long as it doesn't break any rules? Yeah, that's what we do. We try to be more patient. As long as it doesn't break any rules, like you said, we try to stick with it because a lot of times what we've seen with these high volume breakouts is that it's kind of like the cockroach effect. And when we see one, there's likely to be others down the road. And so our goal is really to try to stick with these things, even if they're consolidating, because you know, sometimes at any time they can have these big, these big breakouts out of nowhere that come on really high volume. And that's how you make a lot of your, your you know, return. And it's interesting because it sounds like a big breakout will put a stock on your radar, but that's not necessarily the day you're jumping in. You're waiting for uh, a new setup. So do you find yourself uh, buying more on pullbacks, which was kind of the last example that we looked at? or when it's coming up the right side of the base, what do you say? You know, we don't have hard and fast rules there. You know, sometimes these things are more of an art than a science for us. So sometimes we'll take a small starter position on that breakout. <clears throat> sometimes if we think it's just too extended, we will wait and try to let it consolidate sideways and look for a lower risk entry point. Maybe if it gets closer to its 50 day, 
Um, so it can, it can be a little bit of both there. And if it does start to pull back on light volume towards that 50 day, then we would look to, to kind of build our position up. So you mentioned on the fundamental side, you know, that the, the earnings were starting to come back on this. Um, revenue was still, you know, kind of having negative, negative growth. Uh, so this is a little bit of, you know, projecting forward. So what, how did that kind of play into your decision-making on the fundamental side, knowing that some of those things weren't in place yet, but uh, what, what kind of projections were you using to say, hey, they're coming? Yeah, you know, some of this, I guess, was just, you know, my experience and knowing that with some of these cyclical plays, having been in Mosaic back in the mid 2000s, just understanding the earning power of it. And even though it wasn't showing up in the revenue yet, the revenue was still going down, earnings were starting to firm. Um, and as I mentioned, the, the early estimates for 2021 were showing this, this tripling in earnings. So I, you know, I knew that if the economic recovery continued to take hold, that earnings were likely set to explode. And sometimes, you know, like the high volume breakout that we saw in August, a lot of times these high volume breakouts are, are you know, foreshadowing some positive things to come in the future. And so there's a little bit of just suspending your notion of disbelief and having to trust that the, that high volume breakout was signaling some better things to come in the future. Now, you mentioned uh, hopefully this could turn into a long-term holding for you. So let's rewind the clock a little bit to 2018 and uh, talk about Trade Desk, ticker TTD, and how that got on your radar and you were able to turn it into a long-term holding. Yeah, so Trade Desk has been a long-term holding for us. You know, um, you guys have a, a long-term leader moniker that you give to some of these names. And so I think that this would fit into something like that. Trade Desk is one of the leaders in the whole digital advertising trend and kind of this, this programmatic advertising um, that's been going on as big advertisers are trying to have these digital programs that, that span the, the spectrum from connected TV to PCs, mobile tablets, the, the whole gamut. And so the Trade Desk has been a big beneficiary of that. Um, the Trade Desk came on our radar in, in May of 2018, so right around May, 18th of 2018, it had a huge high volume breakout on really high volume. So that was the big high volume breakout. Stock got on our radar there. Again, we wanted to see some sideways consolidation instead of chasing the name while it was extended. So we tried to be patient while the name kind of traded sideways a little bit. It did, it did move a little bit higher, but as it got closer to that 50 day average, we thought that was a lower risk entry point. We got into the name um, in July. So just, just after July 4th, we, we entered that position. Our, our cost basis at the time was right around $94. So, so pretty good entry. And then um, in August, about a month later, the next time that the company reported earnings, it had the same thing. So we talked about last time how a lot of times these high volume breakouts tend to be repeated down the road if, if these positive trends stay in place. And so that was the case with Trade Desk when they reported earnings in May, it had this really big high volume breakout. And then when we, they reported earnings in August that year, the same thing happened again, where they, they crushed the estimates and revised their guidance higher. And the stock had this really big high volume breakout again. So that was good for us to see, helped us stay in the name through another consolidation. And then the name just kept working its way, way higher. This name, and, and Justin and I talked about this a little bit previously, this name on a price basis does tend to be a little bit volatile. So it's an example where for us in managing our risk, we do that on two fronts. One is we trade around the name. So when it has big runups, 
we'll trim our position, we'll trim it back and take some profits and look to add back to the name on pullbacks. Also, because this one can have kind of some larger drawdowns, we will use that put option strategy that we talked about and put some puts under the name. And so an example of where that was the most beneficial to us in this name in particular was last year in March of 2020, right? So last year when we had the, the lockdown and the market really just fell out of bed, a name like Trade Desk came down a huge amount and we, we wouldn't have been able to stay in the name were it not for those protective puts that we had put on underneath. So those helped offset a large portion of that decline that we saw in the March. Then as the name started to find its footing and come out of that correction, we took those puts off and let the stock run. And last year, it just had a huge historic run. Uh, the stock made its recent highs in December of last year when it got all the way up to around $950. So for us, from our original cost basis, that was a 10 bagger, right? From, from 94 to 950. And that's pretty rare, right? I, I haven't had a 10 bagger since 1999 when we owned JDS Uniphase. Um, <laughs> right now it's kind of going through a correction. I still think that it possesses a lot of these leadership qualities. It's right around its 200 day now. Um, so if it holds there, you know, I think that there's a good chance that this could come back and, uh, and we still own the name for that. Yeah. Reason. So now how much, how much more do you expect? I mean, you've, you've got a 10 bagger here. Um, are you thinking 20 bagger, you know, I mean like where, how much is enough on a name that's given you so much already? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to, to know that ahead of time, right? As long they have a, they have a really big opportunity in front yeah. of them, obviously with this whole digital advertising market and how much money there still is to come from the physical advertising market transitioning to, to more digital. Um, and their earnings power has been really strong. So as long as they can continue to grow their earnings and revenue, then I think that the, that can continue to, to support the stock price. You know, um, back in my RIA days, you know, we held a name like Apple for years and years and years for clients. And sometimes it would go through year-long consolidations where it just really right. wouldn't do much, but then it would come out of it and have really big runs after that. And so, it's an example where sometimes you just have to exercise a lot of patience with these names to, to, to benefit from the, the longer term opportunity. Now to just kind of tie a bow on the whole risk management idea, um, when something has got a 10 bagger for you, uh, that can easily become a larger percentage of your portfolio. Um, is that something that you uh, cap at a certain level and, and, and take, take, some, take some profits just to get it down to a level that's more comfortable so it doesn't hit your portfolio if it goes into a correction? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a huge part of it. You know, our average position size in the portfolio and our portfolio on average, we hold about 30 to 50 names. So it's a little, it's a bit more concentrated than the average mutual fund. You know, we, we didn't want to hold two and 300 names. And so our average position size is probably around two to 3%. We will let something get as big as, as 5%, but that would have to come more through appreciation, like in this example. So yeah, we are constantly managing that position size and, and trimming it back. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of this podcast. I've been listening to it for a while and I hear these guests come on and talk about how they have 10, 15 and 20% positions. And, I, and I'm jealous when I think about, you know, how, how well we would have done, but I just, I just haven't gotten there. And uh, for our risk management purposes, you know, we do have to kind of focus on our position sizing a lot more. Most definitely risk management. Again, it all comes back to that. <laughs> and, and, you know, one of the things that is just, again, remarkable about this one that we were talking about is that the, the, not only does it have that phenomenal earnings, but the earning stability is, is 
remarkably stable uh, for, for having such high earnings. And that was one yeah. of the things that really uh, stuck out to us when we were looking at our long-term leader screen on this one. Yeah, you know, right now for, for people that are listening, you're, you're showing the, the data boxes on the weekly Marketsmith chart. And that's, that's something that we look at every time. It's part of our, when I talked about how we do our deeper dive into the fundamentals, we're always looking at that earning stability rank. And like you said, when it has these, these lower numbers, it just helps give us more confidence. You know, in this case, Trade Desk checked a lot of the boxes that it was having consistent upward revisions to earnings estimates, consistently beating those estimates and raising guidance in addition to this, this earning stability um, rating. Um, you know. Yeah, which it shows as an eight. And just so people know that that rating is a one to 99 uh, with one being the most stable, 99 being more volatile. And I think on top of that, I feel like a lot of the companies that have the really strong earning stability don't have that high of an earnings growth rate. <laughs> so I feel like that's uh, exceptionally impressive here with Trade Desk as well. Yeah, for sure. Especially a, a company that's in the advertising space, which tends to be more cyclical in nature. The cyclical companies rarely have the low earning stability that some of the more secular grower types do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, th that, that was a great conversation, Jordan. We really appreciate you coming on as a guest. Um, that's going to be it for this Investing with IBD podcast. Uh, again, thanks to our guest, Jordan. Uh, next week, we're going to have John Kosar, Chief Market Strategist for Asbury Research on the show. And uh, we can't wait to talk to him. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Alyssa Corum and Justin Nielsen signing off. We'll see you next week. And for this week's notes and charts, make sure to go to investors.com slash podcast, where you'll find details for each episode in the podcast episode section. And make sure to subscribe, rate and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.